Shalom, shalom, beautiful friends. I'm so happy to see you. I'm so happy to see you. I'm sorry about last week, a last minute health situation in the family. Thank God everyone is is doing just fine. But um, I try to do everything possible to not let things like that get in the way. But sometimes um, man plans and God laughs. <laughs> so so there, there we are. Okay, friends, class 29 on pearls of kindness, living with deeper kindness in our lives. Tonight, uh, today is on Anava, Anivut, uh, walking humbly, walking humbly in the world. Let's start with a little poll question to get our our thinking flowing, our feeling flowing. I find humility to be overrated. Let's focus more on self-celebration. Number two, kind of important, but so difficult. Number three, the great, noble, and lost trait of previous generations that we must rekindle. Okay, let's see how we did. Let's see how, our, how we scored on the test. Just kidding, there's no test. Wow, wow, this Shehekianu, there's a first, there's a first for everything. Zero percent said humility is overrated. Let's focus more on self-celebration. Zero percent said kind of important, but so difficult. One hundred percent of voters today said the great noble and lost trait of previous generations we have lost, that we have lost, uh, that we need to rekindle. Wow. So um, that's the first time in all of our polls we ever got a 100% vote. So very interesting. Okay, Anivut, here we go. Uh, as usual, we will do, uh, yeah, exactly, the previous generations part. Maybe I should have left that out because that sounded a little bit like a MAGA, a MAGA kind of thing, right? It used to be so great. <laughs> um, right, let's make America great and humble again. Um, okay, anyways, um, as usual, I'll, I'll share some ideas and you can always type in the chat if you want. Today will be a little bit on the shorter side of presentation, and then we'll open up the conversation together. So perhaps humility, more than any other virtue, could be identified with the religious personality. Sadly today, often being more religious is instead associated with being more certain, more rigid. I really believe, I, I know the absolute truth, right? The one who is most fervent and adamant might be deemed the master of faith. But a different approach might be that the one with the most humility about themselves and about their knowledge is the master of faith. Acting humbly can be a great kindness because it gives space to others. Right. I just want to I just want to emphasize that point again, that it once was that a humble believer was humble because they didn't believe they had the truth. God has the truth. But today we see as a social phenomenon that the most religious person is not the one who's uncertain about truth because they're humble, but the one who is adamant about what is true. They know what is true, and that makes them more religious. That is a big shift that we see over the last few decades. We will explore and examine two forms of humility. The first is the most commonly thought of approach, lowering oneself. I am humble because I lower myself. 
In the second approach, we will explore alter alternative models of humility where we don't necessarily lower ourselves. The Torah teaches us that our greatest model here is Moshe. It says over there in Numbers, now the man Moses was very humble, more so than any man on the face of the earth. Rashi here explains that humble means low and patient or tolerant person. Right, interesting um, that the word savlanut, as we talked about earlier, savlanut in Hebrew means patient, but it also means tolerant. Um, uh, it also means tolerant. It also means to bear a burden, to carry a heavy burden, because sometimes when you're patient, it's hard because you're itching, you're itching to move and you can't, you have to wait. Or to be tolerant, sometimes it, you have to suffer because you want to just tell someone the truth, but you want to be tolerant of difference. Right. And so Savlanut, patient and tolerant and bearing a heavy, bearing a heavy burden are all connected in Hebrew. So here's what it says over here in in the Ramban. The Ramban says, now the man Moses was very humble. This is stated to tell us that God was zealous for Moshe's sake on account of his great humility, since he himself would never answer the injustice meted out to him, even if he knew about it. The Midrash states, Rabbi Nathan says, they, Miriam and Aaron, spoke about Moshe even in his presence, as it is said, and the Eternal heard it. Now the man Moshe was very humble, and he restrained himself about the matter. Scripture therefore mentions Moshe's humility in that he endured their insult and did not answer them back, and that, and that God was therefore zealous for his sake. Now, I, um, I, I want to share a Rav Cook story here. Um, but just one point before that, which is that part of being humble, I think, in this worldview is that we're not so affected by what people think of us. When people praise us, it doesn't totally fill us, right, that we are filled through praise. And when people speak against us or hurt us, it doesn't totally lower us, right? Our, our sense of self is not deeply informed by feedback. Right. Our sense of self is rooted in a higher faith, in a higher spiritual consciousness. So when we're slighted, we're not so lowered. And when we're praised, we're not so raised. There's nothing wrong with being praised. And it might be actually good for people to slight us. Right. But we're not so affected by us because our, our sense of 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 connectedness to a higher purpose is beyond that is beyond. So Rav Cook the first Ashkenazic chief rabbi of pre-state Israel, he had a detractor who really hated him because he was too modern thinking. And this guy would pour garbage on Rav Cook's head. And um, uh, and that guy who would pour garbage on his head one day got very sick. He got very sick and the tzaddik of Yerushalayim came to Rav Cook and said, hey, that guy who's been kind of embarrassing you and shaming you for years, he needs your help. Um, because there's only one medical professional in the world who knows how to perform the procedure that he needs. And he's in London. And apparently you're the only one in Israel who knows him. Immediately, Rav Cook wrote a letter to this doctor in London saying, please, you must support and heal this, this man. And as the Tzadik Yerushalayim was walking out, he stopped him. He said, wait a minute, he's going to need money for his journeys. And Rav Cook gave money for this journeys. So why is that example of humility? It's because he might have said, oh, and I, and I think I shared this earlier around this, I, this issue of revenges, right? Um, the not holding, not, not bearing grudges, not hold, not taking revenge. But actually, it's also about humility because humility means that person who has slighted me, I don't really care, right? If that person needs my help, right? That's just a human being who needs my help. And I'm here for them, right? Because it's not about me. It's not about what they did to me. There's a greater calling. There's a greater calling of what it means to be a person who lives with kindness. So here, friends, in the Ramban, in this example of Moses, the model for us to emulate is not to be so easily offended and that, and that we are to restrain our judgment <coughs> and lashing out when insulted or otherwise offended. Rather, we should allow ourselves to be pushed around a little bit, right? We almost, right, there's some examples in the Musar tradition where... <clears throat> The rabbis are even excited when someone offends them. Someone slights them or speaks bad about them. They're excited because they're like, oh, this is going to help lower me, right? In a sense. 
one can, of course, manifest this type of humility by simply not lording themselves over others, by viewing themselves as no greater than the other. This type of humility, the diametric opposite of arrogance, can indeed even be good for us and allow us to experience greater respect and admiration. A friend shared with, uh, shared with me that while learning in, in an esteemed yeshiva in Israel, where the Rosh Yeshiva, the spiritual dean, would enter the Beit Midrash, the study hall, and hundreds of students would ad- automatically rise for him, he would always motion for them to sit down. He, didn't, he wasn't comfortable with them rising for him. When asked, when, when asked, he explained that just because he holds this position of influence doesn't make him any greater than anyone else in the room. He shouldn't be, people shouldn't rise for him. The, the, the same person would often be seen sitting down, engaged in conversation with a student on a step, quite literally lowering himself to the level of his students, Rabbi Meir Schlesinger. Rabbi Bachia Ibn Pakuda, a great medieval teacher of Musar, doubts if he is important enough and his ideas worthy enough to put out into the world. Here's what he wrote in his great introduction of his work. When I planned to execute my decision to write this book, I saw that one like me is unworthy of writing a book such as this. I surmised that my ability would not suffice to analyze all the necessary aspects owing to the difficulty which I perceived and to my wisdom being insufficient and my mind being too weak to grasp all the issues and that I am not fluent in the Arabic language in which I wrote it. I feared that I would toil at something that would evidence my inability and that I would be, it would be presumptuous undertaking, set so that I considered changing my mind and abandoning my previous decision to write this book at all. But when I designed to remove this laborious burden from myself and desist from composing the work, I reconsidered and became suspicious of myself for having chosen to rest and dwell in the abode of laziness, in peace and tranquility. And I feared that it was the desire of the evil passion which was placing this thought within me. And I know that that many minds would have been lost out of apprehension and many losses have been caused by fear if all those involved in good causes were to remain silent and still and, and, and still until they could completely attain their ideal. No man would ever say a word after the prophets who were chosen by God. So Ibn Bakuda here ultimately concludes that we must speak truth even if we don't feel ourselves worthy How many of us have lacked the confidence or held a form of humility that prevented us from doing what's right and what's necessary? Who am I to do this? Who am I to say this? We might ask ourselves. And so he he embraces a form of humility where he feels inadequate, right? To lead, to write, to teach. And yet he feels a calling from God, so to speak, to go out there and still play a role in the world. We may sometimes correctly so think of ourselves as strong or rich or beautiful, but those are nothing to be proud of per se. Rather, they are to fill us with responsibility. The Mesilla Tisharim teaches, one who is wealthy may rejoice in their lot, but at the same time, they must help those in need. If one is strong, they must assist the weak and rescue the oppressed. The situation is analogous to that of a household where there are different servants assigned to different tasks and where each servant must fulfill their appointed task if the affairs and requirements of the household are to be attended to. In truth, there is no place for pride here, right? That when we say moda'ani, when we wake up in the morning, we can feel that we are alive because we are chosen for a mission. We're not we're not arrogant because we're alive. We're not arrogant if we feel that we are beauty or beautiful or because we have financial means or because we are educated, right? right? Rather, it leads us to this deep sense of gratitude to be alive, this deep sense of responsibility to, to pay it forward that we have been chosen for life. Similarly, the Talmud teaches us a divine model that we are to emulate. It says over here, God upholds the cause of the orphan and widow, and loves the stranger, giving them food and clothing. So too, the rabbis teach us not to seek honor, but to honor others. Indeed, honoring others will be the greatest honor to ourselves. Ben Zoma taught, who is honored? One who honors others. 
It is not only that humility is a virtue and good for others, but that it's good for ourselves as well. With arrogance, we are weak. The Talmud records, Rabbi Alexandri said, whoever has arrogance, the slightest breeze will shake them, right? If we, if, if we think of ourselves as so great, right? As soon as we are shook by being slighted or by being weakened, right? It shakes us, right? We, are, we feel our vulnerability in a way that we wouldn't, we wouldn't if we didn't think of ourselves as so great. Furthermore, people detect arrogance and they distance themselves from it. Rabbi Yisrael Salanter used to say, when I see an arrogant person, I feel such a revulsion that I almost vomit, right? Now, we may, we may be in the camp that feel all politicians are corrupt. I, um, I, I, I had breakfast with a, a friend yesterday morning who we reflected on, on politics. Uh, he may or may not be here in the Zoom. Um, <laughs> but, but, um, but we've seen politicians that immediately we feel kind of a revulsion by their sense of self. We may have also experienced others who we, uh, we felt others. I, I experienced John Lewis very differently. Yes, John Lewis was a congressman. But I felt John Lewis um, had a form of humility based on his experience. You may have, you may have uh, seen this in others as well. Don't most of us want to cultivate meaningful relationships that can be sustained? Rabbi Salanter further teaches that we can lose ourselves in this if we're not careful. Here's what he writes over here. Again, the great founder of the Musar movement. Do not be surprised how it could be that a person with all their faults and smallness of stature nevertheless considers themselves, themselves greater than their contemporaries. For the more a person loves being praised and admired, the more will their desire for praise grow and cover up their deficiencies to the point that they no longer sense, the, sense them. They don't even see their deficiencies anymore. And as the desire to feel that, that they are better than others grow, their self-admiration heightens the sense of other people's shortcomings. By virtue of their arrogance, they no longer sense other people's virtues and will eventually only be able to sense their own virtues and other people's deficiencies. And so arrogance will come to fill their entire soul without their even sensing it, right? There's the comical quote by Sartre, people are hell. But the truth is, there's a real arrogance to an isolationist. The person who doesn't want friends, they really hate everyone. Everyone is annoying to them, right? They don't want to be at work because colleagues are annoying. Um, they don't really want to go to social gatherings because everyone is annoying. They don't really want friends because what they see are their, are their deficiencies, right? Now, I, I'm sure many of us can relate to that because I, I, as an introvert myself um, who finds my energy in spaces where I'm alone, uh, I, my happy place is reading a book alone. My happy place is, is, is being in a private space. So there's nothing wrong with that. But I think there is a problem when we get to the space where we really don't like people. We don't like people because <laughs> all we see in them are their deficiencies and um, as opposed to their virtues. And to some degree, we don't see our, our deficiencies as well. I, I, I see a friend here laughing <laughs> because it resonates for many of us. It resonates for many of us that we'd rather um, not be around people all the time. But, but, um, but the rabbis teach that, uh, and nobody would be here if they just wanted to learn alone. We could just go read a Jewish book. But rather, we want to be with a chavruta. We want to be in a learning space because we want to learn from each other. We don't just want to share our own views. If we just want to share our own views, we'll just go to Twitter and just post all day, right? <laughs> That's not a very happy life, I think. <laughs> Additionally, one's arrogance can show that they have a, a low self-esteem. Rabbi Shlomo Volbi wrote, one who craves attention from others has not yet found it themselves. They are unaware of their true worth. Lacking self-esteem, they depend on the opinions of others. They hunger for their praise, for without their appreciation, they feel worthless. When people fail to applaud them, they become hostile and angry, right? This is one of the many problems with social media today. The notion of like wanting to go viral, wanting to receive likes, like wanting to build a network, not because they want to have an influence necessarily, or right, but because there's kind of like that one sense of self has been replaced by a sense of self-identity or public identity, right? Who I am has been conflated with 
the per the image I put out in the world, and that my sense of self has uh, uh, and my self esteem has been conflated with kind of how others experience that portrayal of an identity. This is very dangerous, and for for teens, um, not I mean for all ages, but teens who are really developing for the first time a real sense of adult self in kind of emerging adulthood, and how that kind of um, um, and, and how that's so problematic. When you were a teen decades ago, you didn't have a voice anywhere, right? You weren't, you, like there was nowhere to put your voice out there, right? Um, you know, you had some smaller, quieter spaces like in, in real time to share, but there wasn't a sense that I'm just gonna TikTok videos of myself all day, like dancing in my dorm room, right? I'm gonna just like TikTok me walking my dog, right? <laughs> As if, and then like, if I don't get likes there, then who am I? Who am I in the world, right? And so one pathway towards humility is to consider how small the value of our own life is. Wow, that sounds sad. But here's how it, how it was taught in Pirkei Avot. Akavia ben Mahalel said, know where you come from, a putrid drop, and know where you are going to a place of dust, vermin, and worms, and before whom you are destined to give an accounting and reckoning. The King of Kings, the Holy One, be blessed, right? So this is one model of humility. Like, come on, who am I? Like, I came from nothing. I'm going to the earth. And ultimately, I'm just going to stand as a soul before God. Who am I ultimately? A similar but slightly different approach is to understand that our responsiveness to the divine should be born out of humility. The arrogant person puts themselves first, but a humble one submits. Rashi teaches this model in his commentary on the Akedah story. God calls for Abraham and he replies, Hineni, here I am. Rashi writes, here I am, Hineni, this is the response of the pious. The Hineni, here I am, implies anava, humility and alacrity, right? Ready to heed the call of God. One of the important lessons of religion is the idea that the job of God is taken, right? I'm not God, that job is taken. It cannot be us. Psalms, Psalms teaches, the arrogant cannot stand in your presence. You hate all who do wrong. To stand before God, we must be filled with awe and humility. And another Psalm states, for you delight not in sacrifice, else would I give it, that you have no pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. That's Psalm 51. An alternative approach to humility, however, is not that it means to lower ourselves and think lowly of ourselves, that approach we just stated. It's not that I am nothing, and so I should be low about myself, but the opposite, to see our beauty. Rav Cook teaches about how one should find their inner perfection in their humility. To the extent that inner perfection is lacking, nature will strive for exterior perfection. Get it? You're going to act arrogant if you don't see your inner perfection. The more we find our inner perfection, the, the less we'll seek an exterior portrayal of perfection. The drive for self-glorification before others will only awaken from a state of baseness or of spirit, whether in what the spirit really has or in what it doesn't have. Therefore, a person must increase the impression of their inner perfection and then their words when speaking of themselves before others, will always be properly balanced. Rav Cook shares in a different work, when humility affects depression, it is defective. When it is genuine, it inspires joy and inner dignity. In other words, for Rav Cook, we must know our self-worth and strive to have a positive self-esteem. Only then can we achieve true humility before others. So to conclude, friends, the type of humility we wish to cultivate is not one necessarily rooted in, in low self-worth, but in high self-worth. At the same time, it is to be rooted in a form of submission and subjugation to the will of God, perhaps. Such a sense of self based on a deep sense of intrinsic value will lead one away from needing to prove their external value and will ultimately lead to a healthy humility. Okay, friends, a lot to unpack here, and I would love to hear um, your thoughts and ideas. Hi, Aglaia. Okay, I guess I'll go first today, all right? 
All right. So I actually thought of a way that, okay, there was an experience that I had that actually combines the two forms of humility, though, but I don't know if it's, I'm going to convince everyone about it, though. So long story short, though, I, this was something I actually used to explain something to someone else at one point, but it was, you know, back in 2000, I think 2015 or so, my sister had friends um, who actually kind of, you know, the whole family adopted there from Greece and everything. And they were kind of hurt. I found out that they were hurt that we hadn't come to visit them. So I said, okay, whatever happens, I'm going to go and visit them. You know, so in 2017, I went to go and visit them. Now I was going from Athens to Crete where they lived. And I thought, okay, well, here's the thing. I have done something. One of the purposes of my being here is, besides seeing all the cool stuff though, but is to basically ask them to forgive me for neglecting them because I have neglected them. So I thought, okay, I am going to ask them. Whether they feel like I have to or not, I am going to ask them to forgive me. So get off the plane, go to the hotel. They meet up with me at the hotel. And I just said there, I was like, well, forgive me for neglecting you all this time. And they were kind of like, why are you asking? What is wrong with you? Okay, we're just happy that you're here now. Now, what really stuck out to me about that moment is um, when I got my, some people would think that getting my diploma after the hell I went through in graduate school would have been a great moment for me. My mom had to save it from a fireplace. I'm not joking about this. She owns my diploma because I was going to throw it in the fireplace. But that moment with Basso and Costas, when they had forgiven me, that is something that I thought of as not only did they forgive me for neglecting them for, you know, those couple of years, but also everything else. And so it's like five seconds of just being free of all of the human, um, for lack of a better term, um, no, I can't use that term, your virgin um, rabbi years, but garbage. How about that? Garbage. Okay. So, and the way that I explained it, it felt like five seconds of being naked without being ashamed. So I don't know if that's helpful, but to me, it felt like, you know, if you can, you know, I mean, cause it's a beautiful moment and everything, if you can actually combine the two approaches, which I kind of felt like that experience did. Mm -hmm. And that I think would be like the, I guess, biggest humility is that if you can see yourself for all of the, you know, whatever, your own foolishness and everything, and still see yourself as beautiful and create beautiful moments. Oh, yeah, thank you. And I think that last point really hit it home. I, I really appreciate that. Um, I think that's right. I think that part of achieving this humility, which mm -hmm. holds on to the paradox of our perfection and our beauty and our light, alongside the fact um, that we're not so important in the world, um, right? I think holding on to those together can be achieved in owning our virtues, owning our vices, and being willing to ask forgiveness, for example, or being willing to publicly kind of be embarrassed or lower ourselves, um, you know, um, and be vulnerable is, um, is a great way to help manifest that and to grow into that sense of I, as a complete person, I am great and I'm nothing. I'm everything and I'm nothing. I'm beautiful and I'm flawed. And um, to model that and, um, um, uh, uh, and, and, and I think, um, yeah, oh yeah, Sarah writes over there. Yeah, love the notion oh, of- Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so thank you for that, that so much. Um, yes, okay, over to you, Lauren. And then Toby. Hi, um, humility takes maturity, good humility. I'm thinking of, you know, a child that's been bullied, whose parents is nothing is good enough, <clears throat> will just feel like nothing, have no confidence. And that's the other side, right? Of, of being, it's not even humility at that point. It's just being so down on yourself. Then again, I, I think too, when I was a new grad or when I was um, teaching associate to new grads and they don't have the humility they need. They're dangerous because you think, oh, I just graduated and I've got all this knowledge. And you forget that experience is important. And so it, it takes maturity and living life and really looking within yourself to be able to develop humility. One other thing I wanted to say is, I, I don't know if you've ever heard, uh, may he rest in peace, Ruff Steins, uh, Dean Steinsalt speak. But that is a man that just radiates humility. And here he was, one of the Dolim of our generation. Mm -hmm. And um, he comes across with such humility. 
perfect example of, of that mita. Yeah, Lauren, thank you for that. That was my experience of Rabbi Steinsoltz as well. I got to hear him just before he passed in person. And um, that was my experience as well. You know, and boy, do I wish our children could learn this earlier. So much suffering, so much suffering about worrying about what people think of us. Um, you know, and I, you know, I like to say, you know, I, this famous quote, don't, don't worry so much about what people think of you because they're actually thinking very little of you, right? That we walk into a room, we think everyone is looking at our clothes or looking at this little cut on our, on our head or something. Um, and actually, you know, people are thinking about themselves oftentimes rather than just the selves, but so much suffering goes into, you know, worrying what everyone um, thinks of us sometimes. So yes, thank you. Thank you, Lauren, for those points. Hi, Toby. Hi, I um, was very impressed by a story that I was told very early in my studies of uh, wanting to become Jewish. And it was about a story about a famous sage who um, was talking to someone else. And he says, you know, uh, my, my teacher told me that I needed to put a note in each of my pockets on the right side was I am nothing but dust and ashes. And then the left side, the world was created for me, you know, and the, the, the tough thing is to determine which pocket to take the note out. of. And that it reminded me of that one. And I'm sure I'm telling the story wrong. It's a famous story of the sages, but anyway, it reminded me of what you were saying to Aglaia about that. I love that. I love that, Toby. Thank you for sharing that. Um, and I think that um, I, I, I would push us to move that from a meaningful story to how will I actually do that in my life, right? I, I'll share an example. My brother, and I'm sure we all have these, these, these ways we do it in our life. My brother um, is an options trader. And he once told me that when he has a really good day on the floor, I mean, he's not on the floor anymore. You know, you could trade options lots of ways. But when he, when he was on the floor, when he has a good day, that um, what he would do when he goes home is clean his toilets. He just clean his toilets because he, he, he wanted to remember, oh, I'm not the guy who just made a bunch of money today. Right? I'm, I'm the guy who cleans my toilets, you know? And, and so, so how do we do that? Like when we've had a really down day, how do we, do, how do we build some rituals in our lives that kind of build us up? right? Remind us of our inner light, remind us of our beauty, right? And when we had one of those days where we feel like we're the master of the world, right? It, it, whatever, whatever triggers that, right? What are some, um, what are some things we can do to kind of pull that note out of the pocket? Oh, by the way, when next time you're in my office, I'm going to give you a coin because I had 500 coins made that on the coin, it says what Toby just said. On one side, it says, I'm dust and ashes. And on the other side of coin, it says the world was created for me. So I will give you one of these coins. I, I forgot I have them. I, I, I made 500 of these like a few years ago. and I forgot to have them. I used to give them out. And so you can have one of these coins and keep it in your pocket. Hi, Sarah. <laughs> good afternoon or good morning, depending on where you are. Um, I asked a couple of questions. First, is low the opposite of being high-handed? Hmm. You know, is that what was meant in the expression of low at the very beginning with Moses. Then um, I also, I was fascinated by Shlomo Wolf's notion that, Wolf's uh, notion that the, that we, we shouldn't be looking to others for our self-worth. And while that's true, one, when we are down, speaking to others, making that connection with someone else, seeing us often reflected by another human being helps to not only reconnect us with ourselves, but lift our spirits. So I think that there's certainly a place for that other as a reflection of ourselves. Mm -hmm. But what came up for me mostly was an image of our being or the non-humble, the arrogant being a Pinocchio effect that as we live our life, we just get bigger and bigger and bigger and we're no longer deeply grounded in our own being. And so 
That's why we topple just like a tree that doesn't have a decent root system. Um, those are the things that have come up for me today. And I'm just really enjoying this conversation. Thank you so much, Sarah. And I hope others will engage with her thoughtful points as well. I just wanna offer two things that came up for me in that. One is that is if, if we go back to Buber and Levinas, like what, um, and others who kind of think about this encounter of a face-to-face -face experience, this relationship that Sarah's talking about, right? That like, what, how should we be in a human encounter? Um, how should we be? And I think one model of humility here can be that we're simply thinking less about ourselves and more about the other, right? That the humility cannot be that I lower myself. It's just that I'm so focused on you and your needs and your experience that I've kind of um, transcended myself to some degree. I, the opposite of that would be a form of entitlement. My, 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 my encounter with this other is not kind of other conscious. It's really just immersed in self. Like, like, what are you going to give me? Let me tell you everything I need and I want. So the trick here is because we don't want to remove the self from that space. How do we hold the other consciousness while still holding a form of self-awareness, right? We, we don't want to completely abandon our, our thinking, our feeling, our self-awareness and our self-needs, but we really want to be immersed in kind of another consciousness. So how do we kind of exist in that, that phenomenological space? Um, so I want to just throw that question out there. And then the other thing is thinking about different spaces and where reciprocity and mutuality emerge. So for example, um, going back to our session on kindness on visiting the sick, we learned that the rabbis of the Talmud said, we should sit below the bed, right? We should, we should sit below the person when we're visiting the sick, right? Now, the, the rabbis explain that to be that, that the Shekhinah, the present, the feminine presence of God is hovered above the hospital bed, right? And so we don't want to, we want to lower ourselves before the divine presence. How cool is that, by the way, that the holiest place is actually the hospital, right? Because God wants to be with the, with the sick. Um, and yet the psychological piece there is, I, all of us have been in a hospital bed. And there's kind of a dynamic of somebody kind of like standing over us as opposed to kind of lowering themselves to kind of be present with you. Now, that doesn't mean we actually have to sit on the floor of the hospital. That's probably not probably not um, hygienic um, or, or what the hospital wants us to do. But to think, to be aware of, of, of power dynamics and spaces that we're in. So there's a space like that where we physically want to lower ourselves. But then there's other spaces like a friendship where we don't want to necessarily lower ourselves, but bring our full sense of self. In the space of relationship, we should bring our soul, full self in relationship to the other's full self to some degree. And so, yeah, so Sarah's point there about, Mo, about Moshe kind of lowering himself, the Hebrew there is shefel ruach, right? It's, it doesn't mean physically lowering, it's lowering our spirit in a way where like, we can make more room for otherness. Because if you think about it, we can't transcend the self. We are so self-filled. And I don't mean that as a moral statement as much as a psychological statement, right? All data passes through this, the subjective filter of the human mind. Everything is, is filtered through self. So how do I embrace that? That actually I, I, I can't remove myself from this space, but I wanna be as other present as much as I can, right? Um, I wanna be present to my breath, but really in a way that removes a little bit of self to really to really listen, to really listen to another person, right? I need to kind of like remove my biases, remove myself to be present to that space. That's a hard thing to do. Hi, Steve. Hi, Steve. Hi. Um, and then Gary, yeah. Good, good to see you. And 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 let me say, and I, I, I can speak for everybody here, I'm sure that you do a good job of removing yourself uh, and and feeling the other, the, the other people around you. Um, the initial poll that we took, I almost wanted to vote for number one and number four, because I don't think that self-celebration is necessarily bad, nor is it um, a strange bedfellow 
with with modesty and and humility that that encompasses the whole circle of the human being. Uh, if if I were with someone who did some something really well, it could be nuclear fusion that they were talking about last night, or or sing a song, uh, or or hit the ball out of the park. I would want to see that person celebrate. Uh, it makes me feel good. I think we all inherently have part of our soul, the desire to create things, to do wonderful things. I would almost feel sort of squeamish if somebody did not celebrate something mm -hmm. good that they did. But at the same time, um, there there is a Shabbat for, for self-celebration, and that is humility. Humility is, is self-celebration Shabbat. And and so I I think it's all part of the of, of the big circle. And number two, if I could, and th this is just a personal preference, um, I would have trouble feeling good sitting alone and reading a book. I love reading, but I don't like being alone. I love being at stadiums. I love being at concerts. I love being at Valley Bait Midrash presentations. I, I feel warm when I'm near people. They don't have to say anything to me, or they could say something to me. The, the proximity to somebody else to me is invigorating and warming and fulfilling. And uh, who was who it that you showed, Dr. Wolby or Rabbi Wolby? I looked at his smile, and I instantaneously felt a closeness to him. Um, which might not have anything to do with what I just said, but I love being near people. It is viscerally something so uplifting to me. And I want to thank, thank you for the time. Amazing, Steve. Thank you so much for that. Um, I love that point. I'm sure that resonates for many around what being around people does for us um, and what it means to be in community. And to be sure, to be in community is an act of humility, just to be in community. Because to sit home alone, I can have everything just how I want it, right? The temperature, how I want it, the volume, how I want it. I can do whatever I want. To be in community means everything's not going to be how I want it, right? That the temperature, it's going to be too cold or too hot, too loud or too quiet. It's going to be too long or too short, right? But I'm going to be in a space because some things that don't work for me work for someone else. And that's an act of humility. And so I, I appreciate that so much. And, and Ethan, I love that point also around uh, not lowering myself, but raising another up. I think I, I think it's a really great way to think of it. Um, the one point on Steve's point of self-celebration I want to add as well is one way to think of this, it's that this humility we're talking about is not as much what we do, but how we do it. There's nothing wrong with self-celebration, right? Right? We shouldn't say, oh, I don't want a birthday party. Who am I? Why should somebody celebrate my birthday? Or I don't want an award. Don't give me an award. I don't want to be recognized publicly. What do I need an award for? Right? But rather, we can have a birthday party for us. We can receive an award. We can put ourselves out there. And yet, how do we do it? Do we do it in a way that makes others feel bad, that we just try to promote that we're great? Or we do it in a way that's a collective celebration, a way that makes others, others feel good, even if we're kind of the, the, the focus for a moment? Um, and so, uh, Steve, I really appreciate that because I think that um, we, we, I, I want to remove this false binary of self-celebration or, or, or humility, that these things are actually go hand in hand. Yes, uh, uh, Reb Dove. Oh, and then, and then Cheryl. Reb, uh, oh, oh, no, hold on. Gary, I, I passed Gary. Gary and then Reb Dove and then Cheryl. Yes. Good morning, Cliff. Am I muted? Nope, you're good. Great. You good? Yes. Good. Good morning. Uh, is it, can we, can we be humble in different settings? Mm. Uh, I mean, I'm a healthcare provider and I've always considered myself pretty humble. I have a hard time taking praise from my patients and, and what have you. I'm the one that don't give me an award. I always pass that off, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and I, and I, I see myself as not being, as being humble in that regard, but in my personal life, uh, this, uh, just to give an example, I, I did not get along with my parents at all uh, for many, many, many years. 
And, you know, here I went to, I was the only one in my family went to college. I went to medical school. I, I was successful in, in, in business and in, in other organizations. And uh, my father, for example, like never got a praise, like, oh, I'm proud of you, what have you. So I was somewhat, what, arrogant. Uh, the thing that really kind of changed that, because I always held the satyrs uh, for my family, they came in. And out of the blue, one year after the Seder, my father says, I'm really proud of you. Mm-hmm. And and it wasn't about all the physical or all the other things that I did. He was very, very proud that I was putting on the Seder. And that really kind of changed the way in which I looked at humility uh, and what some people consider humble and some people don't. So, uh, I mean, I lived in, in kind of one, one world in which I, I wanted to praise but never got it. And the things that I thought he would be proud of was completely different in his mind. Mm-hmm. So I, I, uh, I just want to throw that out that, uh, you know, we can maybe live in our own self-esteem and what we're looking for in, in different settings within the world. Gary, thank you so much for that. I'm not going to comment at all publicly about the personal things you shared, of course, um, but I just want to thank you for that vulnerability and for and for giving us a window to your soul in regards to how you experience um, humility um, and how that's been informed by your career and by your upbringing. And I do just want to challenge us to think about the question that Gary raised for us, which is really, how have our unique life circumstances informed our sense of self, the way that our, we were parented? And if you were someone who was not praised as a child, how has that informed your sense of humility today? Or if you were a child and praised for things that you think were not actually what matters, how does, has that informed who you are today? And one thing I want to just offer here, if us, especially with children, is to think about offering praise for being rather than doing, right? That what makes a person valuable is not what they produce. Um, what makes them valuable is their intrinsic being. And how do we get their self-esteem to be more connected with that they have an inner light and an inner beauty? They're not praised because they won the soccer game. They're not praised because they got the A on the math test. I mean, we can celebrate achievement too. That's a separate enterprise. But the real sense of celebration is um, that they themselves are intrinsically valuable, right? And I think a lot, of, a lot of children are sometimes praised for the wrong things. And so they seek to have a life to maintain um, those achievements because that ultimately will give them a sense of self-value. Okay, thank you, Gary, for all you shared. Yes, Rabbi Lerner. Yeah, there you Sorry. Are. Good. I, do, I do that in order not to jump in on other people. Oh, oh good. Thank you for doing that. Uh, there's another form of humility that uh, does concern me, that I don't see often enough. In professional work, people forget footnotes. The idea I just shared really came from my teacher X and his students. Mm -hmm. It's not mine. Yes, yes. And I have so many colleagues who quote one of my teachers and don't give him credit. (laughs) And it's as though they're trying to claim as if we're not going to know where he got it from. Yes. Yes. Rabbi, thank you for sharing that. And this is so important. I want to remind us what the Talmud says. I mean, it sounds so crazy, but you bring Mashiach, you bring the Messiah by quoting things in their original, in their origin. B'Shem Omro. B'Shem Omro. And when we do things B'Shem Omro, um, that brings redemption to the world. Because you're exactly right, that our success is not to our credit. Some people might say like, oh, I am because of what I am, because I pulled myself up. I worked so hard. Yes, somebody may have worked very hard and they should be proud of that, right? But so much of our success is due to our parents is due to societal infrastructures, is due to teachers, is due to mentors who supported us, is due to God giving us life, right? Is due to like luck, right? So much of what we have is not due to our own credit. And um, it is so easy to forget that. 
And so many of the ideas that we share are also not our own ideas. Um, that we, you know, they're really other ideas that, we, that we've been given. And so that's not only good for public discourse to have footnotes, as Rabbi Lerner said, to quote things in their origin, um, but it's also good for ourselves to remember, you know, how we got to where we got and where we, where we learned things. Um, so thank you so much for that. Um, so I see Cheryl and then, um, may, and then I may have seen a hand from Ethan and Eddie also. I, I love that we're hearing from everyone. Um, yeah. And if we haven't heard from you, please do jump in. Hi, Cheryl. Hi, everybody. Um, I uh, feel like, well, Rabbi Lerner just just really um, put it into perspective that humility is a learning process um, that it's, you know, maybe it's easier to be arrogant than it is to be humble, which I think we've kind of established that. But I think for me, I, I look, I, I mean, I look at others sometimes and I say, I, you know, I should take a lesson, just like quoting someone, I should take a lesson from how so-and-so behave, not how so-and-so behaved, but I really love what so-and-so did. I really, sometimes I say, I wish, I mean, I, I, I'll take that on now. I, I will take on, I'll take that on. In other words, I'll give them credit for it. Rabbi Lerner, but I also will, you know, will say that this is part of my learning, my, my constant learning, which was, is to learn from others. So, um, I mean, I think so many of us have said today that learn that humility and is, you know, community, you know, being, being in a community. And, um, I just feel like I learn lessons from people all the time. And one of them is about, being humble. And um, uh, I, I mean, I think it's, it's good. It's, it's important to, uh, con to constantly remember that too, that mm -hmm. it's okay to learn from others and it doesn't make you any less of a person, but it just makes you open to the idea of how to be in this world. Thank you, Cheryl. I love that. This ability to learn on being on this process of learning. I think that's so beautiful. I mean, we all know people who basically believe the exact things they believed 50 years earlier and, and basically say the same things. And um, what they're basically conveying is that they've kind of got it figured out already. And I think that being in a journey of learning is, um, is, is, a, is a commitment to saying that, I, you know, there's always room for this growth and, and learning. And, and I think the other side of that as well is being more charitable with others in their learning process. Give an example. When I say the name George Wallace, everyone thinks racist, segregationist, and the like. But he, he engaged in a certain process of teshuva, a certain process of repentance. And there's a black woman, someone remind me who, uh, um, who really started that Charlie process Chism. for her. Say, say it again. Charlie Chisholm. Yes, thank you. Where she started a process in her ability to see him and forgive and, and see him, um, started a process of teshuva for him. And Rabbi Tulishkin spoke about this when he gave a, a talk in Denver and in Phoenix for VBM um, around this journey. Um, and when people were skeptical, he said, nah, that guy's just a racist, don't trust him. John Lewis stuck up for it. He said, look, I, I, I'm listening to Wallace and I think there's some sincerity here. And I think that part of what it means to um, be humble as well in, in the spirit of Cheryl's point about learning is being willing to see other people differently as well. There's not just good people and evil people. There's not just haters who never change. If we listen to people, there's people who are changing. And um, if we just think they're the same person they were, that's not fair. And it's also true in the history of ideas. You, you've heard people talk about the history of ideas as if, oh, those people were all fools. They all were, you know, backwards, they're people of the past, right? But, um, or, you know, all those philosophers got it all wrong. They were all just, you know, fill in the blank, right? But actually, put seeing people in their own context is also really important to learn the context that other people lived in and have the humility to see them and some of their virtues within the context they live. Yeah, they were flawed, just like we're flawed. Right. 
but we can't just swipe them away, you know, historically. I mean, to a, you're almost humble just to be a student of history, just to be a student of ideas, because you say those ideas that don't work today, I still want to study them. I still want to learn them because there's value in them, even, even though they're flawed, right? Okay. Okay, great. So um, uh, were we up to Ethan or Eddie? Rabbi, I was just going to share real quick, um, commenting on, on Rabbi Lerner, that uh, one of my teachers taught me, as Rabbi Shmuley already said, that when the when we cite all of our sources, that the Messiah will come. And that teacher was Rabbi Shmuley here uh, in Colorado, in HEA. Um, he, he taught me that. So I was just thinking about uh, you and your teaching, Rabbi Shmuley, um, for for Rabbi Lerner's comment. And, and I, I also think that that brings up an important point when we think about the sort of divisive nature of our society, that part of humility is accepting that we have our truth, that is our lived experience, um, but that we're also humble enough to accept that others live truths, that that their sources are valid and that we must hear their stories. Um, and I think that when all of those stories come to the table, as Rabbi Shmuley, as you taught me, uh, that that is when our world will be more whole. So I, I appreciated you, Rabbi Lerner, for bringing that up and Appreciated your teaching, Rabbi Shmuley. Thank you, Ethan. I really appreciate your generosity. You know, I want to share one, one reflection before I pass it to Eddie for a last uh, comment over there, which is that um, this last week I've been a student of Elvis. Um, I, I, I was in Memphis over the weekend and I took my daughter to Graceland and I automatically wanted to hate Elvis. I'm like, what is this obsession? Like, I just don't get it. Like, what is, I, 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 I'm not into the clothes. I'm not into the songs. Like people fly around. This is the second most famous house after the White House. Like people flock there. Like they, they literally like live for this man. I'm like, what is going on here? And I felt like this guy must be so arrogant. I'm like, but, but, you know, but the truth is, and again, I'm, 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 I'm he's a complicated dude. Maybe you saw the recent movie, um, you know, complicated dude. But in listening to his voice on multiple occasions, the respect he showed to people when he was being interviewed, you know, and the way he used kind of a low tone of voice. Yeah, I mean, he was a rock star. So he had a pretty, you know, full sense of self as any rock star would. But the level of humility that you wouldn't don't see from a lot of rock stars today, the way he communicated and the way he thought of his own charity and the way he thought of his, you know, um, uh, uh, his resources. I think that we need to find people who are not perfect. Nobody's perfect. We need to find people in history and people alive today who we think really live by this types of traits well and cling to those models. Because I think, as Ethan said, it's storytelling. It's holding on to stories of people. Maybe it was a parent for us. Maybe it was a grandparent for us. People who um, don't exemplify all these values of kindness that we're talking about, but maybe they exemplified one and we could keep that in our consciousness and, and think about that. Um, yes, Eddie. Thank you for that, Rabbi. Um... Something that is always ingrained in me, um, my grandma used to say that there is a very fine, fine line between confidence and arrogance. And what draws that line is humility. And I really hold that dear um, in, in, in everything that I do. I actually wear sandals um, that are made for my village to remind myself that I come from a village, that no matter where I am, I come from nothing. Like I, I come from dirt. And um, I, I use that as a reminder of, of every single day, remind myself literally with what I walk with. Um, and it also brings me to um, what Socrates says. And I, I, I love this. The only thing I know is I know nothing is, is what humbles me a lot um, in my learning and everything that I keep continuing to learn. While I try to celebrate my wins, I also know that I, I love that you brought that up, that a lot of what we do isn't by ourselves. And I think it's a capitalistic mentality to say like, oh, I did it myself, like with my own bootstraps. But like, that's forgetting that, like that person gave you, a, somebody gave you those boots, somebody helped you put them on, somebody uh, taught you how to walk, somebody taught you how to run. Um, and and that's what I, I think, like, I know I wouldn't be where I am right now if it wasn't by great leaders and mentors like you, Rabbi Shmuley, and other uh, countless blessings that I've had in my life. So and I think it's important to, like Rav um, Dover was saying, it's like give credit where credit is due, because you you, you oftentimes have so much blessings that help you continue to lift up. Beautiful. I think that's a great point for us to close on today, to think about how we walk in the world, thinking of Eddie's sandals, 
and how we walk in the world and um and to remember that um you know we're able to walk in the world because of people before us um and just just this ability to walk at all you know and you may remember that quote that you you've seen before of this idea of uh the footprints in the sand that we thought were ours but in fact was someone carrying us right um and so i wish everyone blessings for a great day and a, con a continued sense of self-celebration self-joy self-confidence purpose and calling and a sense of just awe that accompanies that um that fills us with an other consciousness as well and a gratitude and a responsibility god bless have a great day <laughs>